everybody. Welcome to the Wild Ass Podcast. This is season one and officially episode one. I am Wild Ass Craig. In this episode, I'm going to... This guy's name is John Wenner. He goes by Paco and he is a professional long-distance endurance rider based out of Phoenix, Arizona. Prior to his current base in Arizona, he was a part of a community of riders in South Florida. Both locations allow for year-round riding, along with the southern routes from California to Florida and all of Mexico. Paco rides most of his miles these days on his trusty 2021 Indian Challenger, just as he has on the Indian Chieftains before this latest bike. The previous two Chieftains rolled over 300,000 miles since 2016. Paco also rides off-road on a BMW F650GS and a Yamaha YZ450F, mostly in the southwestern desert and rally events in Florida. Paco has finished the Hoka Hay Motorcycle Challenge in 2016, 2018, and 2020 as an elite rider completing the ride in the top 20 finishers, and he is registered to make another attempt in 2022. What is the Hoka Hay? The Hoka Hay Motorcycle Challenge is the event that changed the dynamic of how and where Paco, rider number 851, rides. The Hoka Hay Motorcycle Challenge is a one-of-a-kind endurance challenge ride that covers over 10,000 miles of secondary roads all over the United States and sometimes Canada. Some of the criteria for the HHMC are you have to be on an American-made V-twin motorcycle, you cannot use electronic navigation, you cannot carry spare fuel, There is no extended range gas tanks allowed, no support chase team. The rider must sleep outside with his motorcycle. The rider must cover the entire route, which means wrong turns must be retraced back to the point of departure from the specified route to ensure complete coverage of the route. Any moving violations disqualify the rider from the challenge. Riders must register at official checkpoints where they will actually receive further turn-by-turn directions for the rest of the route. Riders must stop for inspection at surprise checkpoints along the route. The Hoka Hay is an individual challenge that has the rider pitted against the route, road conditions, weather conditions, and mechanical issues. The goal is to complete the entire route as quickly as possible within the rider's abilities while maintaining integrity and safety. It is just the rider and their motorcycle on the road towards discovery and higher self-awareness. Riders who complete the challenge in the spirit that is and was designed to gain an unshakable confidence to travel anywhere at any time under any conditions. While training for the HHMC, Paco has ridden multiple Iron Butt Association rides, such as the basic Saddle Sore 1000, where a rider covers 1,000 miles on a motorcycle in under 24 hours and has been the staple of his training rides. Occasionally reaching deeper, to run the Bunburner Gold 1500, where the rider covers 1500 miles in under 24 hours. And on several occasions, Paco completed the 100 CCC, in which the rider rides coast to coast in coast to coast to coast rather in under 100 hours. Paco also certified 100,000 miles in 2017, while covering all 49 states and most of Canada as well as Mexico. For equipment, Paco uses Climb outerwear, Forma boots, Schubert helmets, Gerbing's heated liners, and a wild-ass neoprene seat pad. This combination makes it possible to ride anywhere other than ice roads. 
Flacco uses Starbright's Startron fuel additive to keep his machine running while using any gas available in the most offbeat locations throughout North America. Paco has shared his experiences in many public speaking events all around the country, as well as on multiple online channels. He stands out as an approachable voice in the long distance rider community and can be seen all over the country at LDR gatherings. Paco rides to raise money for veterans charities, Native American causes, and empowering the disabled. All that being said, it's time to introduce you all to a man that I am honored to call my friend, Paco. Welcome to the show. Hello, Craig, and hello, listening audience. It is a pleasure to be part of this community and to be part of this podcast. I'm truly honored. Yeah, this I'm, I'm very excited for this, Paco. You are number one. You're the victim of all things that could fail that we don't even know about yet. <laughs> That's awesome. And, you know, that is exactly the way that this started for us. It was just a perchance happening, you know, meeting that I ran across you selling your seat pads at a point in time that I needed a replacement for one that had failed. And that's what led us to the conversation that led us to exactly the spot that we're in right here today. It, it is. And I have to correct in episode zero, um, I actually said that we met in 2018. And as I said it, I'm like, wait a minute. I think it was before that because we actually met in 2016, correct? That is correct. We met at the Sturgis Rally in 2016. Um, you were at the Black Hills Harley Davidson dealership set up there. I think you were selling through, was it J&P or was it someone else? I think we actually met, and I do remember this, and uh, I'm hoping you're going to share your side of this story. Um, we met, it was actually on the lot at J&P Cycles in Sturgis. That's exactly correct. That's what I thought it was. And, you know, it started off as a, you know, oh, look, I'm at a motorcycle rally. They're selling stuff that I need. And I walked up to you. <laughs> I saw the seat cushion. I took it out of the cover so I could really get a good look at it and noticed immediately that it did stuff that the current one that I was riding on did not do. Yours channels air much slower, gives you a sense of stability, and then the materials seem to be much more durable. Obviously, I wouldn't know how durable they were until I put it to the real test. But as we had the conversation, I introduced myself, told you what a big deal I was, and said that, hey, you should give me one of these, and I will put it to the test. Because <laughs> this coming year, I'm going to ride 100,000 miles, and that's a pretty good test of your equipment and a testimony to how durable you say it is. And your answer to me was quick and succinct, saying, we're a new business. We don't have a lot of ability to do that, but if you want to buy one and then share your story with us, that would be great. Here's how you buy one. <laughs> and that's exactly the way we started. So I'll be honest with you. I'm used to people tossing me stuff for free to test because it's very difficult for motorcycle equipment manufacturers to find people who will really wrench this stuff out and put some miles on it. And I, I'm used to people talking, here, go burn up some miles on this. And you were in a very different position. And you know what? Our relationship started exactly that way. I'm a customer. It did. I like your product. <laughs> and let's see what we can do with this thing. And it's funny. I know I've told you the story, uh, you know, from my side of the perspective, I came from another side of the industry where everybody 
thought they should get sponsored. Right. So I was very mm-hmm. used to this and uh, I, yeah, I'm like, no, we're not going to do it. And <laughs> it was good because you ended up buying it. And then you got mad at me because you had to buy your girlfriend at the time one as well. <laughs> That's correct. That's correct. And then every friend that I know who saw me successfully use it, had the same issues they say where can i get it who can i talk to and i just i i handed out your contact information like it was you know daisies in the wind everybody got one and now That's... i can honestly say that virtually every long distance rider i know sits on one when they ride um, and awesome. regrets it when they don't on the business side of things of course i thank you eternally um you know that this podcast is not going to be all wild ass stuff because yeah. I am more interested in sharing your story than I am my own because your story to me is really cool. When we first met and you shared with me that you're a big deal and I thought, yeah, I can ride. That's not a big deal. I can do, you know, I can do a lot of miles. It's no big deal. Well, I had never even heard of people that ride like you at the time. So of course I didn't believe it. You said you were going to do a hundred thousand miles in a year. I was kind of like, yeah, whatever. You know, they all say that, but you really did. Mm -hmm. It was crazy. Um, The first question I always have, and I'm going to call you out on it right now is, uh, and I know so, but nobody else knows because everybody I talk to has this question. What do these people do for work? That's a very valid question. I am a professional executive chef. And I've worked most of my career on the private side of the industry. And the name of my business is actually Slave to the Rich and Famous. What I do is I provide right now catering for private jet aircraft. So if you're rich and you're traveling and you're hungry, I'm the guy you want to talk to. Which is hilarious because this whole friendship started back in 2016. And I was telling Renee this just before I came out to record. We probably talk we talk at least every other month you and I do yes and and have for a long time and it's funny because now our conversation is hey what are you doing I'm just feeding the rich and famous (laughs) (laughs) yeah I'd like to think of it it's it's almost like feeding the poor and the hungry it's the same exercise it's just that these people have a lot more money to pay for their gift you know their stuff Um, and I like to think that I keep them from starving at 51,000 feet it's, it's a job that somebody has to do. You know, there's a lot of those jobs out there that I was completely unaware were jobs until you come across somebody who does them. And this is exactly mine. And, you know, <laughs> before the private aircraft catering, it was chefing aboard a private yacht, uh, very much like that show Below Decks, but without all the drama. Can you share a little history, some of the the big names people would know that you have cooked for and served or, or have you been on their payroll? Sure. Um, you know, I'm not bound to secrecy anymore. My non-disclosures are all expired now, but I have done work for Denzel Washington. I've done work for Celine Dion. I've done work for uh, half a dozen, you know, nameless billionaires whose name you wouldn't know, but the company that they created, you would absolutely know. Um, you know, the founder of Blockbuster Video, Wayne Heisinger, Reg Grundy of Reg Grundy Productions, television producer from Australia, and then George Johnson out of Spartanville, South Carolina, 
and plenty of others. Rich DeVos, Javen Andel, the two founders of Amway. I worked for both of them. I was the team traveling chef for the Orlando Magic for a couple of years. And I've done some really, really odd and interesting jobs. And cooking is what got me there. My mom never thought it was going to add up to much. She wanted me to continue pursuing my career as an accountant. But I'm just not really an accountant type personality. I, I would agree to that, knowing you. How, <laughs> <laughs> when you say names like Denzel and Celine Dion, how are they? I'm assuming you met them. How are they in person? You know, universally, everybody that I have ever worked for um, more than once um, are likable and approachable people. And because I enter their space, as somebody providing food, sustenance, care, consideration, love on a plate, um, they usually regard me quite well. Um, and I find them to be unbelievably personable, warm, friendly people. You know, I've only encountered a few people that I found distasteful enough to not ever work for them again. Um, and that's a very rare thing. Most of the folks that I've worked for and most of the people who populate the industry that I thrive in are very genuinely, wonderfully nice people. And I think it was pointed out by one of the first billionaires that I worked for, a guy named Jay Van Andel, who was racked up with Parkinson's and had a very difficult time mustering speech. But every now and then he'd have you know, a moment of physical ability where he could speak very clearly. And in one of those occasions, you learn to sit and listen to what the man has to say, because these are nuggets and real gems of wisdom. And we were talking and, you know, I think the subject of money changes who you are came up. And he pointed out very succinctly that money doesn't change what you are, that money gives you the ability to be more of what you were. And he said, if you're a generous person, it gives you the ability to be a philanthropist. And if you're a mean person, it gives you the ability to be a tyrant. And he was absolutely correct, because that is exactly what I've encountered my whole career. Usually people who are generous and kind, who are philanthropists in every sense of the word and donate massive amounts of money to causes that are near and dear to them or to people who are just generally in need. And that's you know, I get to be a part of what that is by witnessing these people do so much more. And the general contempt that some people exercise for the rich, I cannot share in because I can honestly tell you that every single one of the people that I've worked for supports hundreds of people underneath them that it takes to continue building and doing what they do. And without their ascension to wealth and success the hundreds sometimes thousands of people who toil underneath of them to help build that success together would not have this possibility so i'm i love you know the position i'm in and i love the people that i've worked for and i do feel especially with some of them it's very much more than a business arrangement a transactional thing i feel like i'm just simply part of the family and there's still half a dozen clients that I work for that I could walk right into their home today and sit down and have a cup of coffee with them. And they'd welcome me as a friend, not somebody who just was an employee.
And that is exactly how I'm regarded. Um, and that's how I regard them as friends. Um, they just pay better than most of my other friends. <laughs> that's, that's actually really cool. And I've, I've heard that a number of different times. And a lot of times people will see these celebrities and think they're stuck up or they're snobs or whatever, but I don't think they really know that they're, they're, they're doing a job and they have to stay focused sometimes, whether it's in racing or athletes or whatever. Um, it's cool to hear your, your take on that because uh, I, I, I just wrote down 16 minutes. So if, if anybody listening needs to rehear that, just go right back to that and listen. They are great people. I'm sure most of the time. Um, they really are. Yeah. In the, in the writing world, to, uh, to talk a little bit about that, how is it that you actually got started in writing and how did that evolve to where you are now? Not like the whole story, but what, where did you start and how did you start writing long distance? You know, I started off riding much like every kid I ever knew. A buddy of mine had a dirt bike. He let me give it a try. I wrecked it a few times, eventually figured out how to do it and got successful riding my buddy's dirt bike. And then when I could finally, you know, sort of, you know, hide one from my mom, I got one myself, kept it hidden for about a year um, until eventually I had enough of a wreck that, you know, it was hard to explain all the missing skin and you know had to come clean and she said never again get rid of it and i did for a little while but then as soon as i gained my own wings and got out of the house the very first thing i did was buy a motorcycle and that was my primary source of transportation through the later years in high school and all the way through college and i've had a motorcycle by me my entire life now um and i ride purely for pleasure um, for no other reason whatsoever. I mean, I would do this no matter what it cost, no matter what it took, because I enjoy it that much. And, you know, I transitioned just like everyone does off-road bikes to eventually a sport bike um, and then a high performance sport bike. And then once you get racked up with that a little bit, then you eventually morph into other areas and then at some point later, when I got older, fatter, and wiser, I got settled onto a cruiser and decided this was really cool. And then more and more comfortable, more and more capable cruisers, more and more durable ones when I finally found Indian. And then that just propelled me even further. So that's the nutshell of it all. But I didn't really get into the serious long distance stuff until an unfortunate accident um i got crushed in an accident um on a bike probably about nine years ago eight nine years ago and it was a devastating accident uh 45 mile an hour t-bone and just ruined me broken shoulder broken knee punctured abdomen punctured foot 450 stitches, skull fractures, facial fractures, you name it. If it was there, I broke it. And it took me a full year and a half to fully recover as much as I could from it. And people looking at me today would never figure it ever happened um, because it all came together very nicely. But it was the perspective that I got after that moment 
that led me to pursue every dream I ever had that was unfulfilled. Um, it was shortly right after that that I left my employment and went into an early retirement, um, moved to an island in the Caribbean, bought a beautiful house, met a beautiful girl, had a tremendously successful life, and then started riding that bike everywhere. Um, and then eventually wound up being introduced to a community of people um, who were very serious riders. And I had no idea that they even existed. And I'll give you a snapshot as to what that looked like. I'm yeah, sitting I, in a bar. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, please. Uh, uh, I'm sitting <laughs> in a bar in Nislin, South Dakota with a buddy of mine. And we're talking about how tough we are and how bad we are because we rode these ridiculous bikes from Florida to South Dakota, and we're going to ride them back. And this old cowboy, a guy named Richard Rutherford, hog dog, leans into the conversation. He goes, so you think that makes you a tough rider, do you, boys? And we looked at him and sneered and said, yes, it does, old cowboy. It does. He goes, let me tell you about what a real tough ride is. And he described his run in the 2010 Hokahe Motorcycle Challenge. And right there in that instant, when he described what it was, he's a brilliant storyteller. He's a very smart fellow, but he can really spin a tale. And he told me about this, and I was instantly hooked in the notion of, oh, my, there is something really big out here that I need to know more about. And I went about searching it out. There wasn't a big presence very difficult to search information on the Hokahe Motorcycle Challenge and get anything reliable other than a few surface pieces. But I found myself looking in different directions for this information. And then one day I went to a lunch with some other riders in Florida around the top of Lake Okeechobee and sat there with three Hokahe finishers. And then I knew once we started talking that this was for me. And it was in that conversation that I realized this is something I must do. And at that moment, right then, I decided that whatever it was going to take for me to get to there, I was going to get to there. And that's exactly what I did. I took the ride. Oh, that I have nowhere in my notes um, of your crash. That seems so backwards to normal people thinking, right? I think maybe a non-biker thinking or not a serious rider, but you crash, you get destroyed and you decide I'm going to ride motorcycle. How did that? Yeah. Happen? And <laughs> I'll tell you exactly what it is. Think about it from the perspective of somebody who works their entire career in a job that they may or may not love, but something that they have to endeavor very hard for and they struggle and they persist. And at the end of it, they wind up finally being able to be free of work and that the financial gain has been significant enough that they have enough money to carry them for the rest of their life. And now they go into retirement. And that moment of retirement is such a relief, but for most people it is so short lived because they have simply spent all of their physical energy getting to that point. And I recognized in that moment of recovering from the crash that my best years were the right now. And I wasn't going to wait until retirement age to do it. 
So at 42, I stepped away from work, what I thought was going to be permanently, and decided I was going to live the biggest, best life I possibly could because you just don't know how much time you've got left. That is the perfect way to look at it. And I always and say, exactly, if I could do it again, I would have sold everything younger, lived a 10-year retirement, and gone back to work. And that's exactly where I sit today. Yep. And that's exactly where I sit today. I went back to cooking because I had a unique opportunity through a mutual friend that I used to work with to do this aircraft catering thing. And I came back because it was a unique opportunity that I felt was a challenge that I was up for. I certainly don't work for the money. I work because I have a passion to grow, build and develop and add to other people. And that's exactly what I do in this job. I am their flexible resource as they call me. And I travel all over the country and train new chefs for the company and general managers how to perform this action in supply jet aircraft with catering. Very, very cool story. Questions about your bio. Um, so to kind of get back to the motorcycle thing, um, in the bio, I talked about your two chieftains, 300,000 miles. That was between the two, correct? And that being That's said, yep, that being said, if I remember correctly, the first one accounted for over 200,000 miles. Can you 212,000 miles was the first one. And I can tell you, I walked in shortly after that lunch at Lake Okeechobee with these Hokahe riders. I walked in, met a salesman, and I said, I need to buy an Indian. And he goes, pick one. And I looked around and I picked one, this beautiful, shiny black one. And I said, sell me that one. And he says, here's your price. And I said, you can do better. And he goes, not on that one. He says, we're having a hard time keeping them in stock. That one's the price of what it is. But if you want a better price, look over here, young man. There's a 2015. All these are brand new 2016s. There's a 2015 sitting by itself in a corner that everybody overlooked because it was an ugly color, maroon and black, and nobody wanted it. And he says, I'll make you a deal on that one. And I said, what kind of deal are you going to do? And he goes, it'll be $1,000 less. I said, okay, I'm listening. And he goes, I'll give you $1,500 worth of spending credit to buy the accessories that you're going to need. Okay, now you got it. And he goes, I'll give you three years of extended warranty. And I said, how's that warranty work? And he goes, it's just three years beyond the manufacturer's two-year unlimited mileage warranty. I said, is there a mileage cap? He goes, nope. I said, sold. <laughs> you just sold me a bike with a five-year unlimited mileage warranty? I am going to punish you people with this. This is going to be epic. You are going to eat so much cost on this thing. You're going to make me want to sell this thing back to you. And sure enough, I did. I punished it in just about three years, I put 212,000 miles on that bike. And towards the end, in the 2018 Hoka Hay, I wrecked it twice. Hit a deer once in Illinois and then went off-road um, in a windstorm, big gust at an overpass in Iowa at 75 miles an hour. Everything on that bike was scraped, battered, broken, or dented. It was held together with gorilla tape 
I mean, it was barely working, but it ran and it still kept running for another 20,000 miles after those wrecks. And it sits right now on the showroom floor at Elkhart, Indiana, where they proudly display it. I, it, that bike is, uh, when I say that's a stories, the things like a legend, the stories of that bike that you hear with the group you're running around with, how you came into the finish line with bungee tape or bungee cords and gorilla tape holding everything together. It, it really <laughs> was the most durable machine, bar none, that I have ever, ever owned. <laughs> um, at 212,000 miles it still had its original clutch never had Crazy. a bolt or a case bolt taken out of the engine case no adjustments to the engine no failures, no mechanical no nothing, it was purely flawless, simply the best bike I ever owned and the only yeah. reason I got rid of it was because replacing all of the fairing, gas tank saddlebags and tour pack that were destroyed in the accidents would have cost more than the bike buying a new one. So I went out and bought a new one. <laughs> well, that, well, that explains why the new Challenger. Um, I was going to ask why you had another Chieftain, but did the Challenger come out after you bought the second Chieftain? Is that the deal? That is exactly correct. Um, if the Challenger had been available when I was shopping for the bike, there is no doubt that that's what I would have gotten. However, it wasn't available, and the Chieftain that I wanted, the Dark Horse Roadmaster, was not available because they didn't build it in 2019. So I simply built one myself and yep. was very satisfied with it, put every performance modification you can do to it, put a 116 engine kit on there, stage four performance modifications, and you know everything about it felt great. But what I did was overbuilt it, and it became non-durable. So because of the heat that I ride in consistently, um, the oh, rear sure. cylinder exhaust port just burned up on it twice. Once at 30,000 miles, and again at 60,000 miles, and that soured me on that bike, and I just needed a solution. So I reached out to my dealer in Elkhart, and they were wonderful, and they said, we got a bike for you. You need to be on an Indian Challenger. It's liquid cooled. It'll survive the desert. It's already got every bit of performance that you ever want. All you have to do is just sit on it, twist the throttle and go. And sure enough, they are absolutely correct. I'm just back from a month's worth of riding where I covered almost 9,000 miles in the month. And I can tell you, this is the best motorcycle I have ever piloted. That is great. How many miles are on it now? 11,600. I just got so, back from lunch in Mexico. So it's new. New, new. Brand new. Brand, brand, brand new. Still shiny in some parts. I'm not much on washing a bike. Everybody who knows me knows that very well. That it's just like a hammer or any other tool. I don't clean it, but I do <laughs> keep it maintained very nicely. I keep the business ends of it running hard. I just got new tires. I am happy with what it is. Yeah, and it's a great looking bike. So to to give a little bit of a story to the people listening, we are recording these. Um, so we're, what are we, mid-December? This thing should come out on the 3rd of January. 
Um, just this past, not this past weekend, week and a half ago, uh, we saw you down in Panama City Beach. And one of the stories that you were sharing, um, you had mentioned doing the CCC. And I, so I have to apologize. I was not a long distance rider before. I, and I, I still don't claim to be, okay? But I don't know all these terms. So I'm going to have to have you help explain them to the listeners. But one thing I, like you said it, and I think I went, wait, wait a minute. I've heard that term before. What does it mean? Um, so talk about the CCC and your first run at that, you know, all the way, like your very first start. Yep. The, the terms that we use, these, you know, abbreviations, they're generally in the realm of the IBA, the Iron Butt Association which is the creation of a gentleman, I believe it was his sole creation. I could be wrong about that. A fellow named Mike Kneebone. And I have a huge amount of respect for Michael Kneebone in the fact that we have, you know, done some stuff together. And, you know, he is an amazing fellow. And he's done some really great things for the rider community. He's been very, very, very nice with me and very supportive of the endeavor that I do. And I met him, you know, subsequent to the rides that I'd started. And what I saw was that there were all these classified rides um, for different, you know, distances and stuff. And the first one I heard about was a Saddle Sore 1000. And I was like, okay, that, first off, that's not even possible. There is nobody who can ride a thousand miles on a motorcycle in 24 hours that's just bs nobody can do that i don't even think it's possible what road system do you have to be on to do that i don't even know it's just simply not possible and i spoke to several people who claimed that they did it and certified that they did indeed do it and you know it, it came to be that it is indeed a real thing that the Saddle Sore 1000 is the hallmark of our ride. And that's what I started with. So when I finally got myself an Indian motorcycle and I was training and I decided I needed to put some miles in and I needed to sort of get experience doing this endeavor, I took off on a ride. I had just gotten brand new waterproof climb gear. And I wanted to prove to myself that it was waterproof. So, you know, how far do you have to ride in Florida, South Florida, to find a rainstorm? Yeah, usually about 10 minutes. Well, it was a dry day. And I rode out of South Florida and into North Florida and then into Georgia. And I was finally, you know, just about leaving Georgia when I caught rain. And I caught rain and then turned to the right and headed east into the rain and rode in that storm front all the way back down to Jacksonville and finally exited the storm in Daytona after six and a half hours of pounding rain. And sure enough, I'm dry. My gear was flawless and made it back home um, just over 1,200 miles in less than 24 hours. So sure enough, I had done the distance but I didn't certify it. So sure. the next thing was to certify it. And that's exactly what I did. I built a ride, I declared it, put it into Google Maps, got a tracker app, 
and then went out there and did thousand miles and proved to myself a second time that it is possible to do this. And then I heard of some more complicated versions of it. So another one is what they call a BBG. So a BBG is a butt burner gold, which is a funny name, but I tell you what, it's 1500 miles in 24 hours, which is very difficult to do even for an experienced rider because it goes beyond endurance. It goes into what is possible in the road system, a road closure, sure. weather, traffic, <clears throat> virtually anything that slows you down significantly is going to derail that ride. And if you need to rest, if you need to eat, if you need to do anything other than fuel the bike, you're in jeopardy of risking losing your ride. And it's tough. And I've done that a few times. And then knowledge evolves and you hear of different things. And then back when I was involved with social media, we had a mutual friend, a guy named Eric Baskell, who currently goes by the moniker Crazy One-Eyed Biker, mm -hmm. co took off on this epic ride from Jacksonville Beach, Florida to San Diego. And that that's a long way. That's coast to coast. And he was doing it under this IBA, you know, endeavor, the Iron Butt Association making this challenge ride to go coast to coast in 50 hours, two days and two hours coast to coast. I, I didn't think that was possible. I just wasn't sure that was even possible. And I watched the live tracker as he did it. And Eric did it with style. He huh. dipped down into Mexico to add a country to his list. He was picking up points for these competitions that we were running at the point in time. And he was just crazy getting it out there in the world. And he completed it. Feet on the beach in both places in less than two days apart. It was insane. And I was like, okay, now I know somebody who's done it. Okay, it's possible. So now that it's possible, can I do it? And I didn't know, but I gave it a shot. So I rode up to Jacksonville Beach and took off on my ride after a good rest and then made it all the way to the middle of Texas before I got a little tired and dopey. I laid down to sleep for a couple hours on a hilltop in Van Horn, Texas, just by the side of the road, slept, rested, got up, felt refreshed enough, continued on my ride, and then put my feet in the sand at Ocean Beach, San Diego, just 42 hours later. And I was like, wow, if that is possible and this just happened, I can turn this ride after a good eight hour rest into a 100 ccc 100 hours coast to coast to coast huh. each segment has to be completed in under 50 hours and you have to complete them both cumulatively in no more than 100 hours but sure enough i got myself a good rest and went back at it and finished in 92 hours wound up back in jacksonville beach and it was amazing and it with that opened up to me now, what now is possible? And right. that's when I decided I'd take the ultimate challenge for me, which was riding from Dania Beach to Ventura Beach. So Dania Beach, Florida, which is all the way down in South Florida, all the way up to mid-California, Ventura Beach, right near Ojai. Okay. Over 3,000 miles, one way, and I was able to do it 
in less than 42 hours, 46 hours. And it was, that's an epic time made possible by the incredible speed limits in West Texas. And completed it, took a quick rest, rode all the way back, another short rest in Texas, and then finished up in Dania Beach with two and a half hours to spare after completing four 1,500-mile segments in less than four days. And that was, to this date, that is the longest distance and the shortest amount of time that I have ever covered. And I have done some epic riding, but that still to this day stands out as something I will probably never, ever be able to achieve again. That's impressive. I, and I don't think you told me about the long one. What do they call that then? If the CCC um, is straight across the it's south. Still the 100 CCC. So it's 100 hours coast to coast to coast. But you string the extra miles into it by adding into the ride four consecutive bun burner goals. So it's the same 100 CC, but inside the ride, four BBGs. And it's the only time I've ever heard of anybody doing it. And I did it really, really, really well. Like I said, I don't know that I could do it again. I've had other long rides. I mean, I took off out of home in South Florida and just went for a wander and wound up back home 60 days later after 30,000 miles hitting all 49 states and most of the provinces in Canada and some of northern Mexico just out riding around seeing what's out there unreal which always like I said that's why when when we hear these stories I can't be the only person that thinks what the hell do you do for work (laughs) (laughs) we know now in your bio you mentioned talking at some speaking events what type of events were these and are these the stories you were sharing or what were you talking about the first speaking event that somebody formally invited me to around the motorcycle i've done speaking engagements for my work as a chef and i've done public demonstrations and i've done some public access tv and i did a cooking show for a little bit but the first time somebody ever approached me to speak regarding the motorcycle world were the folks in elkhart indiana it was their pr director sarah paholic who reached out and said, hey, Facebook dude, would it be possible for you to talk to our Indian motorcycle rider group here at Elkhart, Indiana? And I wrote back to her and I said, sure, sounds interesting. When are you thinking about doing it? And we kicked around the idea a little bit and it made sense that as soon as I was done with the moonshine lunch run, which was in central Illinois, in I think it's the second weekend of April, it's now defunct. It doesn't happen anymore. But I would ride further on to Elkhart and speak to their group. And they said, no worries, we can fly you out and we'll put you up in a hotel and we'll do all this stuff. And I said, no need. I said, I ride a motorcycle. I can get there. And I said, I'll <laughs> sleep wherever it is I sleep and we will work it that way. And I said, I'd be honored to speak to your people. And that's what I did. So I had my speaking engagement with the Indian Motorcycle Rider Group out of Elkhart, Indiana. And I met two of the most wonderfully supportive motorcycle enthusiast people you ever want to meet, Chris and Ann Shell, who own the dealership. And they are just remarkable. And what they do for the rider group is astounding and unheard of. 
you know, I had done Indian motorcycle rider group stuff before, but never felt like I was part of a community the way that they associated out. And I had just the best time and committed to them that I would come back. And now I'm usually back there once, sometimes twice a year, ever since then, um, speaking on different subjects to different groups but still the same general theme of let's go ride a motorcycle somewhere epic. When you do that, do you feel a little bit like a celebrity? Not really, because, you know, in my head, in my skin, I'm still just me. And, you know, I know people who are celebrities on a motorcycle. I'm aware that they exist. You know, there's, was it Frankie Garcia, who is, you know, a world road racing champion and won that, you know, King of the Baggers challenge and propelled Indians challenger motorcycle to this epic status that it is. These are celebrities, you know, people who race are celebrities, you know, the flat track racing team, you know, the wrecking crew for Indian, those are celebrities. That's not me. I'm just a guy who had a unique opportunity and has a colorful story to tell, and I am happy to share it. But for some people who are not involved with the long distance motorcycle riding world, it sounds a little fairy tale ish. And I'll admit that when I heard about it at first, it sounded completely made up that this was not going to be possible. Not my Mm -hmm. experience on a motorcycle. Nothing like this was possible. I remember riding from DC to New York in my teens and thinking that was an epic ride. And now that's something I do just on my way to lunch. <laughs> well, I, I would agree. I would disagree with you, though, on, on the not being a celebrity. It's just the, the pond may not, as be, may not be as big, but I think in the long-distance community, you would qualify as a celebrity. For sure to, to me and all the people I know. So I think, well, it's, I, uh, I think it's pretty I do, cool. So I do appreciate that. And, you know, The one thing I do take very seriously is the fact that I am here to represent and promote the endeavors that I'm involved with. Hokahe is certainly one of them. The IBA Mm -hmm. is another one of them. And long distance riding, endurance challenge rides, and then just supporting other riders. This is not a competition. It is utterly not a competition. We do not compete against each other we compete in the same endeavor in parallel to be the best we can be at it. And the people that I've encountered in this community are epic. I mean, you're going to have some of these people on your show, I know, coming up. And I'm so honored and proud to call these people my friends and to call them my peers. That, that, that may even be a bit of a stretch that we are peers because you got people who are world record holders, people who have taken epic rides that have never been done before by anybody else. And that's not my category. I've done some amazing stuff and I love what I do, but I am not that level of epic. Um, These guys are just something else. And women, you know, we have all walks in here and I love being associated with it. But thank you for the notoriety. I appreciate the way that you and people in our community see me i appreciate that very much yeah it's you've earned it for sure um and uh, you know you go you kind of said that how you're all a group of peers the more i meet you guys you and all of the the whole gay family especially i can't believe how you're right you're not competing with each other um you're just a group of guys 
riding motorcycles, you know, loving each other, making sure everybody's okay and uh, taking care of your own, which is so cool to see. It very much is that. <clears throat> and then, you know, a lot of it, you know, spills over into the charitable nature of what it is we do because we don't ride just for ourselves. We do ride ourselves for our own enjoyment, our own purposes. But so much of what we do is to raise money for charities that are beyond us so that we can use our riding as a platform to improve somebody else's status in life or their lot or their situation. And it does make a massive difference. And I wish I was better at it, but I can tell you this, I'll hang my coat on a lot of these other guys rack and just follow where they go and then raise with their charities and use their endeavors and their mechanisms to raise because it makes a massive difference. But near and dear to my heart are veterans charities and Native American causes and empowering the disabled to be more than what they are. You can't scream that loud enough when you're hanging out with you guys, um, how everybody's out there doing this for others. And it's crazy to even try to do it and that actually that's a question i have coming up and i'll just ask it now because you you kind of brought it up um you choose veterans native americans disabled fundraisers and i have a question because a buddy of mine here in town posted on facebook that he wants to do a thousand mile ride and raise money for what's important to him or drug and alcohol treatment his name is dylan he would say do something small um i have since learned that no matter how small or how big it is, it's big to somebody. And that's the way it should be looked at. How do you get started in a fundraiser or how would you advise somebody that wants to do something like that? I would say the first element that you have to identify is you have to find something you are passionate about, no matter what it is. Whatever it is you are passionate about, find it identify it and then pursue an avenue so that you can support what you're passionate about by empowering or helping other people. Once you've identified that, my first endeavor was for the Native American charities. My dad is Native American and I grew up outside of the community. So I did not feel involved or in any way entrenched in the Native American community. But when I got a glimpse of how some tribes exist in very, very isolated reservations, I realized that that's not the promise of these proud people and that this is not who they should be and that economic opportunity wasn't available for them and that perhaps I could do something about it. And I endeavored to raise money for a Native American charity that I knew could benefit greatly from any money raised. And my first endeavor, I only managed to raise $5,000. Now, that's not a lot of money in the fundraising world that we exist in, especially now. But back then, before social media platforms and influencers and before PayPal and all these other donating apps, GoFundMes and stuff, it was a pretty good shot at what it was. Now, with what's out there in terms of the technology to collect the money, and hold people accountable for their commitments, it's a different world out there today. And I just watched a buddy of mine that we all know very, very well. I won't throw the spoiler out there, 
but in less than a hundred days raised more than a hundred thousand dollars doing epic stuff, just epic stuff um, for a very worthy cause. And it may not be a cause that is near and dear to everybody's heart who donated, but his endeavor was. They were passionate about following and what he was passionate about following and supporting. And therefore the charity benefits in the end. But the way that it happens, there are better people qualified to categorize how that happened. But I can tell you for me, it started with Native American charities. And then the more I became involved with the long distance riding, the more I came up against veterans who were challenged by certain things and their endeavors and what they support were disabled veterans charities. And I decided that's an endeavor that I wanted to support. So I went to the CVMA 32 in Sierra Vista, Arizona, and raised money on their behalf because they're a pass-through organization. So every dollar they collect, they pass through 100% of the money directly to a vetted cause that helps an individual achieve something great. You know, either a disabled veteran or a disadvantaged veteran or somebody who's struggling to find homes or whatever it is, they do an incredible job. So I didn't have to do the dirty legwork of it. They do it. I just funneled through money through what I do. And then eventually wound up with disabled persons through another organization called Live Boundless and raised a small amount of money for them. But it was a genuine effort. And a greatly appreciated one on your side too. Yeah, I do get great satisfaction. Something I've done has made a difference in someone else's life. That giving to humanity is something that is important to me. So today, like I said, we're we're pre-recording these. So when we have technical difficulties, we can fix them if we need to. But today happens to be a Tuesday. We're talking later in the day because you had let me know that you had to take a ride this morning. So... A guy that rides long distance and does the kind of riding you do, what does a ride this morning, quote, ride this morning, what is that for a guy like you? This is just, you know, I had a day off. I only have one day off this week because of the busy schedule. So I decided I was going to take this opportunity and ride to Mexico and get my teeth cleaned. So I (laughs) rode to Algodones, Baja, California, crossed the border. Went to my dentist, visited a bunch of friends that I have down there, got my teeth cleaned, had some tacos because it is Taco Tuesday, and then rode back. So 450 miles round trip to go get my teeth cleaned. (laughs) That to most people, that's a full day, a really hard day of riding. That's why I had to I had to ask because I knew it would be something very funny. Um, Yeah, and that was just what covered (laughs) breakfast to lunch and still have dinner in front of me you said you had uh you had you saw had lunch with some friends in the past in our conversations you've talked about your circle when you if you want to go meet up with somebody you have a circle or a couple circles if i'm not mistaken there was can three you explain circles. those yeah yeah yep. that's what it was i found an app it was when i was involved with social media And I found an app that traced from where your location was these circles, and you can set them in any distance you want. So the first circle I set out there, and this was when I was living in South Florida, so you're quite a long ways from anyway. You're in the corner of the country. Oh, sure. Yeah. So I put my first circle out there at 1,000 miles, and I said, reach out to me 
and I can be where you are by tomorrow lunch. Let me know that we're having lunch. Tell me what we're going to eat because otherwise I'm not coming. Um, but let me know what we're going to eat and I'll show up for tomorrow lunch if you're within this thousand miles. And then the next one was 1500 miles. And it's like, if you're within the 1500 mile circle, I can be to where you're at by tomorrow dinner. And then anything beyond that in the entire lower 48, I can be there in less than 48 hours. So pick your poison, tell me what you want, tell me what we're eating and I'll ride out to join you. And that just tumbled into an epic ride for food endeavor over the next three months where I was heading out at least twice a week on a multi-thousand mile ride going to eat something cool somewhere with a friend who reached out or sometimes even strangers. That's the beauty of social media. Strangers reached out and said, hey, I'm cooking. And then they would tell me what it was. And if it sounded interesting enough, I laced up, signed up, put my boots on and went to go eat. What could sound good enough to a professional chef? I'm envisioning you being a food snob just a little bit. No. Well, <laughs> you have certainly eaten with me on enough occasions to know that I am omnivorous. <laughs> I will eat absolutely anything. And I'm not fussy about what I eat, but I am particular about the things that I really enjoy. So I've got a buddy up in Michigan who was putting a brisket on to smoke. And he said he was going to leave it on the smoker until I got there. And indeed he did. I rode okay. out there and it was Texas epic in Michigan. A no beef kidding. brisket that was just melting your mouth and smoky delicious and perfectly seasoned. Amazing. And I rode into <laughs> Iowa for what they call hot dish. I didn't even know what it was. But oh, yeah. Somebody had to explain it to me that it's something that you make with tater tots. And oh. you shape it to whatever degree you want, whether it's Mexican hot dish or Irish hot dish or whatever. But yep. this one was a particular porn hot dish. And what? You, you can even <laughs> say that on the radio? Peas and corn in cream sauce with hot dish and chunks of ham. So peas and oh. corn are porn. I've learned that. Yep. <laughs> That's the only kind of porn I'm really involved with these days. And it's delicious. And it was epic. And it's had sour cream and cheddar cheese and everything bad for you that you ever want to have. And then somebody else told me that it's called funeral potatoes because you bring those to a funeral. And I'm thinking you bring that stuff and it creates a funeral. <laughs> I rode to California for a seafood dinner. I had to cook it, but they told me where we'd go to buy it and it was going to be epic. And then the guy who I rode out to visit, he is a sea urchin fisherman. And he brought some sea urchins for us to test. And we cooked sea urchins six different ways and found them to be delicious. But oh. yeah, I've been all over the country eating all kinds of cool stuff, which led to its own unique endeavor that now a few other people in our community have picked up. And now they're since 2018, I think there has been the RTE, the Ride to Eat. And there are over 400 destinations <laughs> all across the U.S., they change every year, and it's an epic journey of gustatory salvation. Great restaurants all over the U.S. that these riders have found in out-of-the-way corners and pockets, and we alert each other to. And if you go visit there, you put a sticker on their door, window, or wall to prove that you've been there. Take a couple of photos, tell them about the dish you ate, 
and register yourself in the RTE archives. And I do it huh. on a regular basis. After we end this, you'll have to let me know what these locations are. I, I will give you some of them. the website so that you can access them all. Because believe me, there is not a bad meal to be had anywhere on there. Can we share that on here? Absolutely. What's it's the, a what is Facebook the website? page. It's okay. a Facebook page, which I don't have access to anymore. <laughs> but it's run by our brother, Eric Buskell. So oh. I will make sure that they send you a link for the RTE. And then the Epic RTE Endeavor is co-hosted. Um, the end of the RTE season is, I believe, in October. And it's hosted at a dinner created by um, Sharif Al-Sadiq, otherwise known as Reef, and um, K-Solo Rider. Okay. So they're, they're heavily involved with the RTE. And Solo, I think, is a two-time champion. That's a guy who can eat. He is a monster of a rider, but he can eat. I look forward to getting that uh, the invite to that page. That would that would be a fun one to watch. I will reach <laughs> out to my people and have my people reach out to your people. That's right. That sounds official. It does. <laughs> um, so typically, I wanted to keep these about an hour. We're a little yep. bit over. How are you doing on time on your side? You good? I'm fine. Yep. Okay. Yep. I was going to ask you, I mean, I, in your intro, I had discussed the Hokahe. You, being a multi-time Hokahe finisher, how would you explain the Hokahe for somebody that doesn't know about it? Because even I didn't until two years ago, maybe. And I'm like, what is this? And you still can't find a whole lot of information on it. They have a website, but it's kind yep. of primitive. So how would you would, explain that event? As someone who has finished it multiple times, um, I can tell you this. What you know going into it has to ignite a position of passion in you somewhere. Without that position of passion, you cannot succeed at this endeavor. You cannot do it. It is way too difficult. It is too challenging. It is too hard. There are too many obstacles. There is everything inside your body that screams, quit. Don't do this. Stop. Turn around. Go home. Go seek safety. Sleep somewhere warm. But that's what you know going into it has to be the passionate endeavor to finish this thing. And with that passionate endeavor to finish it, what you will find on the road, and you will find it nowhere else but the road, that self-reliance, tenacity, the highest level of integrity, and passion and grit and pure sinew tough is what comes out of you when you're doing something so much bigger than yourself in the service of others. You rack up a charity that you believe in and you want to help passionately. You raise money for them. You enroll yourself in this hokahey. You get accepted after they've vetted you as a rider. And then you take this on. And people tell you the same thing every single time a new person asks. They say, what can you tell me that's going to make a difference in my ride? And everybody universally says the exact same quote. Ride your ride. And I can tell you right now, that means nothing to the new rider. Nothing. The new rider hears that ride your ride and it just floats right by them, means nothing. 
but after they finish, it means everything. Everything. Huh. Ride your ride is the embodiment of what we all do. I ride my ride, you ride your ride, they ride their ride. We all do it. If I feel like laying down and taking a nap because I've had enough, I don't have to be tough and tough it out with you and ride your ride. I lay down and I nap. I want to stop for fuel here because I'm not sure where the next gas station is, but maybe we can make it, maybe we don't. I stop for gas. That's my ride. I want to stop and eat something. I stop and eat. I want to keep going and eat while I'm on the bike. I go. I want to sleep here, there, anywhere. That's what I do. That's ride your ride. And you don't feel it until you've done it. And then when you've done it, there is nothing else in your life like it. Nothing. It is a singular endeavor that changes the who you are forever. And that is exactly the way it came to me. In 2016, I prepared. I trained. I rode. I bought the best gear. I had the best bike. I was on it. And stuff happens. I wound up with a tire that needed to be replaced, wound up in a Harley Davidson dealership that can't replace an Indian tire effectively. They screwed it up. I had to go find another shop on the road, lay down on the ground, borrow some tools and fix what they over tightened and then get through my endeavor. And then in 2018, I did the exact same thing. I wrecked by hitting a deer picked myself up, dusted myself off and kept going. Then went off the road at 75 miles an hour <laughs> on an overpass, tumbling and rolling and tumbling and rolling and broke everything on my bike, except for its will to continue. Took my injured body, stood it up, got back on that bike and kept riding because that's what I'm built for. I am built for the endeavor to complete this thing and do it in style. My first year at it in 2016, my only wish was that I have the tenacity and fortitude to finish it. And then in 2016, unfortunate events fell over several people who were riding in front of me. And I had the strange good luck and fortune to meet with another rider who had befallen an accident. He was blinded in one eye, George Jackman, by a bee sting. And we agreed to ride together so that I would navigate and he would follow because he could finish that way as long as he didn't have to look down at his directions. And sure, two people riding together, not as fast as one, that is for sure. But we still managed to finish, cross the finish line tied for third. And that was what just woke me up to the idea of how much would be possible here. So in 2018, I trained harder, got leaner, fueled myself better. And then went out after it with a real passion and drive, hoping to do my best finish ever. And I was dead set on being a first finisher, but it was not to be. I had a battery failure that cost me eight hours in the middle of Texas, a flat tire that cost me a couple hours after that, a wreck with a deer, a wreck off the road and a windstorm. And it all pushed me back enough that opened up that opportunity that a real champion rider who was just unbeatable, a guy named Billy Fultz finished first and he was unquestionably the best rider of the day, hands down by far. And even if I hadn't have had the setbacks I had, I don't think he would have been catchable. He was that good that year. And he's okay. an amazing individual, huge respect for him. 
but I did wind up riding a lot of miles with my brothers, Eric Basquel and Federico Arbelet. Federico Arbelet was the first finisher in 2016. And together, Federico and I crossed the finish line second in 2018. And then that led me on to 2020. What new endeavor can you do in 2020? Can you try harder and be the first finisher here? That wasn't my lot. I had someone I was dating and she wanted to be part of it. So she agreed to ride two up for 10,000 arduous miles of yep. real raw riding, something she had never done before. And she completed it in style right behind me. And we wound up finishing 14th. And that was good enough to win a belt buckle as an elite rider. And I am very proud of those accomplishments, but even more so proud of what we've done in the world as a result of riding it. The, the people who have been helped, the Hoka Hay used to be a prize giveaway. It was a half a million dollar prize that they gave to the winner. But just since the riding that I've done, they've raised over half a million dollars and donated it to charities. And I can tell you, winning a half a million dollar prize wouldn't have mattered to me nearly as much as getting a half a million dollars into the hands of people who really need it. Sure. I got what I need. I'm going to make sure that people who need something get it. And if I'm capable of giving it to them or facilitating it, you betcha that's exactly what I'm going to do without fail. Very, very cool. Do you have any advice for those of us that may or may not want to get into long distance riding for people listening that, you know, they're, like I say, their long day is two, three, 400 miles and that's about it. But if they want to start riding more, if they want to do some of these, you know, 1K in a day, do you have any advice for people that want to get into it? Absolutely. I'll start with the basic advice of how I've lived my life and managed my career and run my motorcycling. Start where you're comfortable and then immediately go somewhere uncomfortable. Stretch outside of your comfort zone. Go to a place you've never been before, on a road you've never been, in a direction that you're not sure of, with no destination in mind, and just keep going until you're tired. And then when you're tired, Grab whatever sleeping arrangement you have brought with you out of whatever pack you brought, throw it on the ground and sleep soundly knowing that you're doing something epic. Whether that is 100 miles or 300 miles or 500 miles or 1,000 miles, do it. And do it day after day after day until you feel comfortable with it and then go find new stuff to be uncomfortable with. Get out there and go further, go faster, go different, go technical roads, ride with people who are better than you every opportunity you can. Go to places you've never heard of any chance you hear about it. That's how you do it. Live outside your comfort zone because that's where life really begins. And that's what this whole epic motorcycling is about. It's getting to a place that is uncomfortable and unknown and that once it becomes known, it becomes part of who you are and makes you a bigger person. That's how it gets done. <laughs> Say it sounds like you're giving general life advice because that applies to so many things. And it does. It absolutely it doesn't matter whether you're doing it in a Jeep or you're doing it in a Toyota or you're doing it on a bicycle or a motorcycle. It really yeah. all adds up to the same thing. 
if you're uncomfortable or challenged by it, it forces you to either pull back or grow forward. I opt to grow forward. Specifically, if a guy wants to try the Hoka Hay, what would your advice be? Consult with other riders who have successfully completed it. It's not going to help you much to talk to people who have attempted it yet fell short. Talk to people who've completed it. Once you get their perspective on it, then decide whether or not your ride is suitable to make it, whether it's durable enough. Then figure out what you need for sleeping gear because that's your critical time. You don't sleep much, but you have to sleep well. Get good gear to sleep in. And then buy the best weatherproof gear that you can buy and put around yourself to protect you from the elements that you're inevitably going to go through because you don't pick the path, you don't pick the time, you don't pick the weather. It mm -hmm. happens where it happens. And you don't know it's coming. Unless you can look up at the sky and see the weather, you have no idea because you don't know where your next turn is. You sure. don't know when your next turn is. It's very vague. So that's the best you can hope for is to protect yourself from everything. Good gear, stable bike, great sleeping gear, and then practice. Practice camping out. And even if all you do is ride 20 miles from home and go sleep in a field somewhere or sleep in a rest area or sleep in a church or sleep in a post office, wherever it is you find to lay yourself down, make your night of it there and get comfortable living outside. That's where it really gets good. And then once you're comfortable living outside, there are no boundaries that hold you in anymore. You can go anywhere and do anything because you don't need a hotel. You don't need accommodations. You don't need money. All you need is fuel in the bike and the will to go on and you are rolling. That is a great piece of advice. And especially like you threw it in there advising long distance riders too, you know, to try to get started. I think that's really cool. So I found that there's like these one, two, three, four, five questions that I want to ask everybody that comes on the show. Here they are first. Okay. I'm going to okay. one at a time. You answer them. Right. But you, I have not shared with these with me where every nope. listener from first now I've ever has an advantage. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, ask away. So what is something you believe that other people think is insane? You know, I've come to figure out that general population thinks that simply riding a motorcycle is insane because there's so many safer, better ways to travel. But the point that they miss, and that's the critical one, is that the experience, I, I, I've got a truck, I drive it, I like it. But the critical difference is that the experience on the motorcycle is a very full sensory experience. You smell things that you don't smell in a vehicle. You see things through a wider perspective that you don't see in the vehicle because you're not surrounded by the cage of what it is. You go to places that are unique that you normally would not go to any other way. And then through these challenges, you do it in a way that you never would plot it out and plan it out. So I've heard people say that the long distance, especially the endurance riding, is in itself the crazy endeavor that it is. And I would utterly beg to differ. I would say that the riding that I do is what sets me apart as a free person in a way that most people never get to experience. That is a, that is a great answer. Yeah. There's no right or wrong. I just, that's not mm -hmm. one I expected. 
Um, okay, so this could be an investment of money, time, energy, or other resources. What is the best or most worthwhile investment you have made? You know, and honestly, we'll, we'll keep best... this into motorcycling, probably. Yep, I, I I will tell you honestly, the best investment I ever made was I spent five hundred dollars to register myself into the Hokahe, and that point in time utterly changed and reshaped what my life was from that point on. Interesting. That is not $500 anymore. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure what it is now. I haven't even looked <laughs> at it. More. Whatever it is, it was way, way worth it. Um, okay. What is the worst advice you see or hear being dispensed in your world, in the motorcycling world? the worst advice that I have ever heard doled out in the motorcycle realm is buy the biggest, baddest, most high performance ride you could possibly sit yourself on because that is what your success will be built on. And that is an utter misnomer. You know, buying great golf clubs does not make a great golfer. Training mm -hmm. makes you great. Riding with people beyond your skill level makes you great. And if you do so on a bike that you are comfortable on, that's where the money is best spent. Buying a ridiculous high performance, shiny ride is the worst money you'll ever spend if you're not comfortable riding it. Sure. Any ask or request that you would have from me or my audience? I would ask of the audience, to please engage with your local favorite long distance rider to support the endeavor by donating to the charities that they're passionate about, because it is through that, that we all grow bigger as a community and do more good in this world. And right now, more than ever in a country divided by politics and opinions and feelings and genders and everything else that we face in terms of challenges, this would be that one moment that I wish we could all come together and support a universal endeavor to better the place around us. I love it. Um, we cannot follow you on social media anymore. So my question of how do we follow you kind of becomes invalid. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, no, I can, I can give you better advice. Social media, I have withdrawn from because I found it too divisive and the benefit for the cost was not there for me. So I pulled right. myself out of all social media. I can't be reached through any venue whatsoever, but I can tell you this, and I'm more than happy to share it with anybody. If you wish to contact me directly, please do. I will take the time and answer anybody's question and respond to any request. And it is just simply one word, ride for food at gmail.com. That's R-I-D-E, the number four, F-O-O-D at gmail.com. And I will answer any question you have. And I am more than happy to engage with anybody who wants to know anything about this sport, endeavor, passion, charity, whatever. And then the other option is you can actually physically follow me live 
via my tracker information. Um, I will be happy to give that out. I just got a new one in the mail, a new subscription, and will come with a new tracker ID. But I will make sure that you have that information so you can post my tracker ID so you can actually follow me live. And I've had sure. people say, why do you give out this information widely? Because then people can come and find you at your home. And it was like, what could be possibly be better? Somebody shows up with a barbecue sandwich and a bottle of bourbon. I'm happy to have you as company. Show up. <laughs> if you get me that information, I will post it in the show notes underneath, you know, where you click to listen to this. And uh, I'll get that in there. So we got, we got a little bit of time yet for you to get me that information. So Great. I'll get that to you. Um, I'll have it this week. Yeah. So like I said, we, we went a little longer than I wanted to. I am beyond honored to have you as my first guest. I wouldn't have it any other way because you are actually the guy. Um, we blame you. It's your fault that we kind of got mixed in with that Hoka Hey crowd. And uh, we I absolutely love it. Love it. <laughs> we love it. If, if I am guilty of anything in my life, let that be the one that hangs me best. Right? I love that. The fact that you are now entrenched in the Hoka Hey and the Hoka Hey is richer for having you there. And without your product, all of us would be incredibly butthurt. Literally. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> Literally butthurt. Awesome. Well, Paco, I appreciate you coming on, on the show. Like I say, I can't thank you enough for braving the elements with me on this first, first episode. Um, so thank you for that. To everybody well, that's listening, this is a brand new endeavor. So bear with me for the, uh, I'm sure we'll have sound issues. We'll have all kinds of issues, but you know what? Uh, if I waited until I had it right, I'd never get started. So, um, <laughs> well, thank, we you for, <laughs> thank you for having me. It was indeed an honor and I could not be happier with my association with the entire wild ass family. You, Renee, your brother, Callie, and everybody I've ever met as a result of having taken the wild ass challenge. I love it. It has shaped who I am being a part of a community that is so rich in integrity and good intention. And that's exactly what you guys are. You are the, simply it. the very best at what you do. Thank you. So guys, you can reach out to me, follow me on Instagram. I am at wild ass Craig. I can get you in touch with Paco. If, if that's the way we need to go. Um, otherwise, uh, you know, if you want to come on the show, share your stories or you have people that you simply want me to talk to or questions you want me to ask. I'm happy to, uh, to try to get that done. So thank you very much, Paco. You have a good evening. And uh, to all the listeners, thank you guys all very much. Thank you all very much. I really appreciate the opportunity. It really was an honor. <laughs>